0: Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Before getting into today's episode, I just wanted to plug Converge ever so quickly. I know. So many of you have already signed up for this event. We're at over 215 people as of today, Thursday, July 11th, 2019. And we're hopeful that many more will sign up still. Uh, it's it's going to be a great time. We've got a lot of great speakers, a lot of great workshop leaders. We're going to have devotions in the morning with Dan Gill Uh, We're going to have some really quality missionary workshops to inform you about what's going on in the One God Movement around the world, in different countries, from different languages, and so on. And Stan Chi is coordinating that. We're going to have a solid children's program. Rebecca Doxas is to coordinate that, and um, we're just so excited about how this event is shaping up. If you haven't yet signed up and you're thinking of coming, you got about four days until our registration deadline. So might as well sign up today. It's uh, the low end, only $129 to come. That's the whole weekend for one person, including two nights and all your meals. Also, I wanted to mention that two quick things about Converge. One is if you would like to volunteer for the children's program, I think it would be helpful. I know we have enough coverage, like basic coverage, to to handle all the different age groups. But uh, it's just so much better if we have more people. So then everyone can do shorter shifts and participate more in meetings and so on. So if you are somebody who works with children or is a parent and has a little extra time and you don't mind stepping out for an hour or two hours, Uh, during one of the sessions at Converge, uh, please get in contact with me, um, and I can pass that information along to Rebecca. My email, of course, is sean, S-E-A-N, at restitudio.org. Or the other thing is, we have what we're calling an exhibition time, and that is where we're going to allow ministries and individuals to set up tables in an area, uh, a designated area, where you can promote your book, your blog, your podcast, your ministry resources, and so on. So if you would like to get a table there, Stan, is coordinating that, but you just you could just email me, once again, sean at org, and I will forward that information along to the coordinator of that so that you can get plugged in with that. So that's, that's enough of an advertisement. I'm really looking forward to it. It's only a few weeks away now, August 2nd to the 4th, and... Uh, I really look forward to seeing a number of you there. Back to our theology class. We are now in the second-to-last episode in this 24-part theology class, covering the major biblical doctrines as well as various counterarguments. Today, we will focus our time on the New Covenant. We'll make our way through biblical history in order to understand the grand sweep of the Bible, paying special attention to the Old and New Covenants, of special note for this lecture is what happened when Gentiles started entering, the Jewish, entering Jewish Christianity. We'll briefly touch upon the First Jerusalem Council, Judaizers, and Paul's capitulation to James' request in Acts 22. Lastly, we'll see how Paul's epistles, as well as Hebrews, as well as the letter to the Hebrews, makes it clear that neither Jewish nor Gentile Christians need to keep the law in order to be saved. Here now is Theology, Part 23, New Covenant. The Bible says in Leviticus 11, that bacon, pork, (laughs) that pork is unclean. So let's talk about bacon, the Sabbath, and (laughs) the law of Moses. And I want to start by asking you a question. Do any of you happen to know what the Latin word for covenant is. What's the Latin word for covenant? And I guarantee you, all of you actually know this already. Testamentum. I'm sure you've noticed before that in your Bibles, there are two main sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it just so happens that Latin dominated Christianity for a really long time and by then, they were already so used to calling them the Old Testament and the New Testament that they just kept those names. But it really is the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. But there's no use in changing that now. You know what I mean? Like, who's going to be like, hey, I was reading the Old Covenant the other day. It's like, you know, <laughs> it's the Old Testament. That's, that's what everybody calls it. But the Old Testament tells us about the Old Covenant. Actually, it tells us more than just about the Old Covenant, because there's a part before the Old Covenant comes into being. And then the New Testament tells us about the New Covenant. And so when it comes to the Old Covenant, you have the history of the world, right? You have Eden, and then the fall, which was really sad. And then you have, I don't know what, Noah and the flood. Then you eventually have Abraham and Sarah And their lives, and then you have Isaac and Jacob, and then a few hundred years pass, and then the people are in Egypt, and God sends Moses. And Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, Let my people go. And Pharaoh says, No. And God does 10 plagues. And then Pharaoh says, Okay, I'll let them go. And they leave Egypt and they come to Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, they receive the Old Covenant. It wasn't called the Old Covenant. It was just called the Covenant. And on Mount Sinai, they receive the, the Covenant, which we also refer to as Torah or the Law. So the Old Covenant, the Torah, or the Law are interchangeable terms for this agreement A covenant is an agreement between God and his people about what he's going to do and what they're going to do. God says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make it rain. I'm going to make it so that you're protected from your enemies. And what they're supposed to do is all the different commandments we find in the Torah, which includes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But specifically... The second half of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That that part right there is the, the law part of the Torah. Part of the old covenant or the Torah is that you are to rest on Saturday, you no know, working on Saturday. Part of it is that you are to keep food laws, which is called Kashrut or kosher. Kosher laws are, are food laws that say you're not allowed to eat pork, you're not allowed to eat lobster. Crab, clams, Try to think of what else we normally eat that uh, Israelites wouldn't eat. Um, There are certain foods that are considered unclean. And there was a purpose for that. We talk about that in Apologetics, the various theories that are about why God would have excluded these certain animals and not these other animals. Locusts and grasshoppers, by the way, are clean. So you can eat those, good news, right? If you want to have some fried grasshoppers or some chocolate dip grasshoppers. Those are all good. John the Baptist ate locusts, we know, and wild honey. And honey. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with honey. That was part of the law that God had given them. And then, even before we get to Jesus, we have a prophecy, a very significant prophecy in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. In Jeremiah, we read about the prophecy of the new covenant. Go ahead and whip out your Bible. Let's, uh, let's go old school on this situation here. Jeremiah 31.31 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers. On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Uh, So hold on, before I read the rest of that, you see what Jeremiah is saying here. Jeremiah is living a long time after Moses, once they had received that covenant. After the time of Moses. Moses Moses is the first judge. And then after Moses, of course, you have Joshua. And then you have the whole book of Judges, which goes through a long period of time. And then you have the last judge is Samuel, right? So, for, so from Moses to Samuel, you have the period of the Judges. Samuel anoints the first king, which is Saul. And then comes David, Solomon, Rehoboam, all the other kings, all the way down to Zedekiah. All right, so that's like hundreds and hundreds of years from the time of Moses, all the way to the time of Zedekiah, the last king. That's when Jeremiah is writing. Jeremiah is writing at the very end of the kingdom of Judah and he's prophesying about a covenant, a new covenant that God is going to make with his people. And he said, this covenant is going to be different than that one because you guys break that one. <laughs> right? Even though I was a husband to you, you broke that one. What is this new covenant all about? Look at verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That is the new covenant. It actually has four components. Go ahead and write these down. Component number one is I will put my law within them. And it says each of the components twice because we're in Hebrew synonymous parallelism. So it says, I will put my law within them, and then it says, I will write it on their hearts. That's really saying the same thing twice. You can just write it down once, okay? Or write it twice if you want, whatever. All right, component two, I will be their God. And then the flip side of that is they will be my people. But you just write, I will be their God. And verse 34, no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. So you just write down, they will all know me. That's the shortest way to say that. That's component number three. And then number four is, I will forgive their iniquity. I will forgive their sin. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty sweet covenant. And then God says, Thus says the Lord, verse 35, Who gives the sun for light by day and fix the order of moon and the stars for light by night, Who stirs up the sea so its waves roar? The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me. So, in other words, God is saying, Look, go outside and see if the sun is in the sky. Is the sun there? Does it still exist, even if it's a cloudy day? Then my covenant still stands. You're not going to be able to break my covenant. So, and this is once again talking about the new covenant. How do we know it's a new covenant? Look at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a what? New covenant. covenant. That's why we call it the new covenant, because Jeremiah said it would be a new covenant. Now, this old covenant is still in force in the time of Moses. After the time of Moses, you have the period of the judges, which ends with Samuel when he initiates the kingdom of Israel, which then splits into two kingdoms, but eventually that ends in the time of Zedekiah, that's the last king of Israel, and we enter the period known as the exile, which lasts for 70 years. Babylonian exile. Yes, Babylonian exile, which lasts for 70 years, right here. After the Babylonian exile, the people return to the land. They return to the land and they rebuild the temple, they rebuild the city and they're living in the city until the uh, Hasmonean period. The Hasmonean period lasts for about a century, and then the Romans come. I'll put it over here like this. The Roman period. And Jesus is right here during the Roman period. Why am I giving you the whole timeline of the entire Bible? I'm doing that because I want you to see that this whole period right here is governed by the Old Covenant. If anybody wanted to relate to God, the way they would do it was through the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant included a sacrificial system. It included laws, moral laws, ritual purity laws. It also included health laws and a whole priesthood. Right? I mean, it's an elaborate system that God established so that he could relate to his people and his people could relate to him. And that is established throughout this whole period. The Hasmoneans were a group that, they were a group of priests that defeated the foreign occupying power and established an independent kingdom in Israel for about 100 years, from the 170s B.C. to the year 63. 63 B.C. is when the Romans came in and Jesus is active around the 30s when he's doing his ministry so there was actually a lot of time before the old covenant where god did not relate to his people using the law of moses which means that people living during this period like noah or say enoch did not need to rest on saturday they were not required to avoid pork that would not have been an issue that, was, that began to be an issue, and they didn't have to offer sacrifices in Jerusalem or anything like that. That began to be an issue once God established the Old Covenant or the law. However, that law comes to an end and is fulfilled, and the New Covenant is ratified when Jesus dies on that cross. He pours out His blood, and it fulfills the requirements of establishing a New Covenant, with God that we can now relate to Him through. After Jesus, we have what's called the New Covenant. However, it was not immediately clear that this huge change had taken place, like it is on my timeline here. That wasn't clear to everyone who was living right at that edge. It took time for them to understand what jesus death meant what it accomplished what how his resurrection and ascension resulted in him establishing for us a new relationship with god so one of the main components of the old covenant is that god is working with israel whereas the new covenant god is working with gentiles that's a that's a big difference right so if you were an israelite You had to relate to God through the Old Covenant. If you were not an Israelite, you had two choices. Be alienated from God or become an Israelite. You have to join the nation of Israel. After the Old Covenant uh, gets fulfilled and the New Covenant begins, now God is going to relate to all people on the basis of Jesus rather than on the basis of them being in Egypt and God bringing them out. So the very first time when... Gentiles start entering into the church is what I mentioned to you before Philip preaching in Samaria Now these people are not real Gentiles because they're Samaritans and they are actually keeping the law of Moses But they are the first group that's sort of like an outside group that comes in the second one Really the first real Gentile to believe in the gospel is the man from Ethiopia in acts chapter 8 and he goes back to africa and brings christianity with him to africa ethiopia does not need to wait for a missionary movement in europe in the 1800s ethiopia has christianity right from the beginning it's uh, really a remarkable account so really the first gentiles to come in well you have the samaritans they're not technically gentiles but then you have the ethiopian eunuch and he was a treasurer And he's the first. Then after him, Peter goes to Cornelius' house. Now, Cornelius is an Italiano. He's Italian. Italians are not Jewish. Two different things. Italians eat meatballs with sauce. Jews eat different food. So, he goes to the Italian's house. Do you remember how much God had to do even just to get Peter to go to Cornelius' house? He had to give him a vision of a sheet coming down with all these unclean animals. And a voice says, arise, kill and eat. And Peter says, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. And then he sees it again a second time and a third time. And then God audibly speaks to him and says, there's people coming to you. I want you to go with them. And then these Gentiles show up at the door, messengers from Cornelius. And Peter's like, I guess I should go. And he takes a bunch of people with him and he goes to Cornelius' house. They believe that even just going into a Gentile's house would defile them. This is the level of separation that they had at this time. They go into Cornelius' house. Peter starts preaching, and God makes it absolutely clear that he has accepted Cornelius and his family as full Christians and poured out the Spirit on them, just like he did on the day of Pentecost. It's like a second Pentecost, Pentecost 2.0 in the book of Acts, chapter 10. And what ends up happening there is that uh, Cornelius and his house, they are accepted as full Christians, even though they're not Jewish. They have no dealings with the people from ancient times. They are fresh converts. But these are really just isolated incidents. You know, whether we wanna talk about the Samaritans up here, the Ethiopian who goes off to Africa, Cornelius who basically stays separate from Israel. The real action happens in Antioch in Antioch, Syrian Antioch, and what happened there is something that's so exciting. Antioch was a metropolitan area, very urban, lots of international trade and languages and people groups. And what happened is Christianity started spreading around in Antioch and it jumped over the ethnic barrier. It just, it just leaped right out of Judaism, and Gentiles start becoming Christians there. As a result, The Jerusalem church sent a man named Barnabas to go investigate. So he has to make the journey all the way from Jerusalem up to Antioch. And when he gets there, he's just like, wow, this is awesome. Look, you have Jews, you have Gentiles. They're all in one church. They're getting over the ethnic and the racial issues that separated them because Christ has brought peace to these two different groups. And so Barnabas thought to himself, who would be the best person for me to recruit, to come minister here with me in Antioch. And he's like, there was that Paul guy. He was really on fire for God, but we sent him away, and he's all the way up there in Tarsus. Let me go up there and see if see if Paul wants to come join me in ministry. This is before before Paul ever did anything with a missionary trip or anything like that. So Barnabas goes to Tarsus, and he, and he finds Paul, and he says, hey, you want to come and work with me in Antioch? You know, the two of us, will really... We'll really move the word. We'll we'll teach people about the gospel. We'll have meetings. We'll teach them about the Bible. What do you say? Paul's like, I'm in, let's go. So Paul and Barnabas worked together in Antioch and there is just an incredible movement there where Gentiles and Jews learn how to work together in a way that had never really happened before in the history of the people of God. Out of that Antioch church came the first missionary trip. And it says that the Holy Spirit basically guided them or inspired them to send off Paul and Barnabas as missionaries. And so what happens is Paul goes on his first missionary trip with Barnabas, and he has John Mark, at least for the beginning of it. And they go from Antioch to the island of Cyprus right here, and they go to Salamis and they march through the island until they get to Paphos, and they preach there, and they convert the main governmental leader of the entire island. And he becomes a Christian. This guy's not Jewish either. So now we start having more and more Gentiles coming in. They leave here, and they go up to Perga, and Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and then they come back, and they end their trip. And then, a little while later, they go on a second trip. And in the second trip uh paul goes up north this way through galatia and then all the way over to the end of of the asian continent to the city called troas very near to the ancient city of troy if you ever read homer and then he, he he sails over to philippi and he brings the gospel and christianity to philippi a city in macedonia which is part of the european continent and then that trip continues eventually he ends up going to ephesus Miletus, and then he comes all the way back to Jerusalem, and he shares what has been happening. And then he goes on a third trip, and he goes through all these other cities again, and Christianity becomes more and more Gentile. But before Paul was really able to make these trips, before he was able to make these trips, there was a controversy that broke out in chapter 14. Take a look at this. Acts 14 27 says when they arrived and gathered the church together So this is at the end of the first missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas went on They gathered the church together and what do you do when you get back from a missionary journey? You have a slideshow Right you have a slideshow you show pictures you're like this is where we went This is a picture of that guy that we preached to and this is is him getting baptized and isn't it so great Obviously they didn't have photographs or slides but they could tell the story Right? So they get back from their first missionary trip together and they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. All right, So you have Gentiles coming into Christianity and these other what are called Judaizers, folks who are trying to make Gentiles keep the law of Moses, they're coming in and they're saying, look, it's great that you're converting Gentiles. I'm so happy for you. Let's circumcise them and let's teach them about the law of Moses because if you want to relate to God, that's how you do it. That was their understanding. So this caused obviously a big dissension. It says, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So Paul and Barnabas go from Antioch after that first missionary trip, and they go all the way down to Jerusalem in order to have this council with the elders there. And this is called the Jerusalem Council. It's recorded for us in Acts chapter 15. And what happens in that is an official letter goes out. We'll pick it up in uh, 1522. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. So this is the text of a first century letter designed to resolve the controversy. Do you need to keep the law of Moses still as a Christian or not? And this is what they wrote. The brothers... Both the apostles, the elders, to the brothers who are the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Nice beginning, right? Since we have heard that some persons have come out from from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Here are the requirements. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. Don't go to the sacrifices, right? From blood. Don't eat blood. It's just gross. And from what has been strangled. And from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Farewell. (laughs) Interesting, right? So, this letter represents somewhat of a middle position between what eventually comes to be the dominant Christian understanding of the new covenant. And what had been the standard Old Covenant understanding. The standard Old Covenant understanding was that you don't eat unclean foods, you keep the Sabbath, you participate in the Jewish sacrificial system, but not in the Gentile sacrificial system. right? What this is saying is, it doesn't say you have to rest on Saturday, this doesn't say you can't eat pork, what this is saying is like, don't eat blood, because it doesn't say that's gross, but I always just think like, well that's gross anyhow. But uh, don't eat blood, or th- animals that have been strangled have the blood in them, and Sexual immorality, which is any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. That's what sexual immorality is. So this letter goes forth, and it comes up to Antioch. Paul and Barnabas have it with them. And then when they, when they uh, get there, everyone rejoices. They're like, oh, this is great. We can have table fellowship. We can eat with Gentiles and Jews together. This is going to be really great. But you know what? It's something that they struggle with. Because old habits die hard. And there's actually an incident where Peter's up there and they're having some table fellowship with the Gentiles. And Peter hears that some men from James are coming. James in Jerusalem. And Peter's like, I'm not going to eat with these Gentiles anymore. And he separates himself. And some of the other Jewish Christians separate themselves. And they're like, we're not eating with the Gentiles. Because they didn't want to get in trouble for it. And Paul straight up rebuked Peter to the face. And he said, look, this doesn't make any sense for you to separate yourself from them. If you who are a Jew live like a Gentile, how is it right for you to have the Gentiles live like a Jew? And he confronts Peter on it, and Peter backs down. You know what I mean? But these are the growing pains of figuring out the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Let me write down for you that word Judaizers. So the Judaizers are people that maybe they're living right here. But their mind is back here in the past. And what they're doing is they're going around and they're telling Gentiles, non-Jewish people, that they have to keep the law of Moses if they want to be Christians. And these are the Apostle Paul's main enemies that he battles in city after city after city as he's preaching the gospel in the book of Acts. In fact, he writes the entire book of Galatians to defeat the teaching of the Judaizers. The whole epistle of Galatians argues strongly against keeping the law in order to be saved. Galatians 2 says that righteousness does not come through the law. Galatians 3 says that no one is justified by the law. Christ redeemed us from the law and the law's curse by becoming a curse for us. And we're able to get Abraham's promises, we're able to be inheritors of Abraham's promises through the seed of Jesus, not through keeping the law. Let me read you this verse. So then, this is Galatians 3, 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. Super important text for understanding how New Covenant theology works. And that is that Jesus himself is the way that Gentiles are able to now relate to God rather than the Torah and the law which had been in place for thousands of years as the dominant way to relate to God. There are many other verses in Galatians that talk about this. One of the more striking is chapter five, verse one, which says, "'For freedom Christ has set us free. "'Stand firm, therefore, "'and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery.'" Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Look, you wanna get circumcised? You wanna do what these Judaizers are teaching? Christ has nothing to do with you. You're you're cutting yourself off from Christ. I testify again that every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying this truth? Right. So he's really working with these people. Galatia is this whole region up here, but it would also include these churches that he visited on those early missionary trips. So he's not writing it to one church. He's re- writing it to a region that had multiple churches in it called Galatia. There are really two issues that come up here. One is, do Gentiles need to keep the law now that Christ has done what he's done? The second issue is whether Jews need to keep the law because Jews have always kept the law. And what we see in the Apostle Paul's writing is that he says even Jews no longer need to keep the law of Moses. As we read in 1 Corinthians 9, 20, it says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law." What does this verse tell us? This verse tells us that he would go along with the law, with the practices of the law, not because he himself is under the law, but because he's trying to blend in and win people for Christ. Verse 21, "...to to those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ." that I might win those outside the law. What is the law of Christ? The law of Christ is what Christ has taught us, how he has taught us to live, and that is the same thing as saying the new covenant. So Paul's saying that he, as a Jew, himself is not even under the old covenant anymore. It's not just Gentiles, it's Jews as well. In fact, Jews and Gentiles are both under the new covenant. Let me show you another verse along these lines. Romans 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she remarries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brother... So you get the analogy, right? You have a husband and a wife... The husband dies, the wife is free to remarry. she's no longer under the law of marriage. Verse four, "Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God." Paul is here saying that we have died to the law, through the body of Christ. In other words, we have died. And because we have died through Christ, we are no longer under the legal obligation to keep the law. So those two two texts, the one in 1 Corinthians 9, the one here in Romans 7, and we could add Romans 6 to that list, tell us that Paul no longer believed that even Jews needed to keep the law. But then what happens is, Paul went on another missionary journey. Like I mentioned before, he ended up going on three missionary journeys. The more journeys Paul goes on, the more Christianity spreads throughout the region. And more often than not, it's the non-Jews who gravitate to the Gospel message and join Christianity. Not that Jews don't as well, but the weight of the movement moves more towards Gentile than Jewish. And as that happens, people start getting more and more nervous about what that means. And so when Paul returns from this missionary trip, he actually has a he has a collection of money from all these mainly Gentile churches for the Jewish church in Jerusalem because they were going through some financial difficulty. And he brings it to them and when he gets there, James is saying something different than what Paul is saying. So now we have a disagreement within super early Christianity and What are we going to do? So what happens there, we can read in Acts chapter 21, verse 20, where it says, Paul is sharing about all the Gentiles who have turned to the Lord. When they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, Paul, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles, to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, and what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. So James and the leadership of the church in Jerusalem are saying to Paul, Look, people have heard that while you're out and about out west preaching, that you're telling Jews that they don't have to keep the law anymore. So that they know that there's nothing to this false rumor, why don't you? aid those who are going through this Ceremony related to keeping a vow You heard of the Nazarite vow you grow your hair long for a certain period and then once you keep your vow You go to the temple area and you shave your hair and you make a sacrifice So they're saying to Paul. Why don't you get involved with that and pay for their expenses and this will show everyone that you are You do keep the law yourself Here's the problem Paul doesn't We just read that Paul said that we are no longer under a tutor we are no longer under that guardian because of what Christ has done we're no longer under the law so he's really in a pickle here isn't he he's got James and the church and these thousands of Jews who are really gung-ho for keeping the law and Paul you know he really is out there It's not just a rumor he really is out there saying these things as we can read from the letters he wrote to these people and so what's he going to do I'll tell you what happens he just went with the flow. Verse 26, Then Paul took the men the next day, he purified himself along with them, and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each one of them. And when the seven days were completed, you know, he went, he went in. And he, he kept the ritual. However, while he was in the temple court area, helping these guys keep the ritual, somebody stirred up the crowd and somebody said to the crowd men of Israel this is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place and moreover he brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place so Paul gets busted anyhow I don't think this is just my personal opinion I don't think he should have gone with the flow on this I think he should have taken a stand against James and against the leaders there and said to them look You guys need to understand about the new covenant. We're not under the old covenant anymore. None of us need to be keeping the law of Moses. You want to keep the law of Moses, God bless you. But don't tell everyone else they have to as well. He doesn't do that. He just goes with the flow. He goes with the flow. He enters into the temple court, and he gets mobbed. They Look, they stir up the people. The people ran together. They seize Paul. They grab him. They pull him. They drag him out, and they start beating him. And of all people, the the ones who save him... Are the roman soldiers the same soldiers that crucified jesus probably they're they're saving paul from his own people paul's dealing with a very difficult situation here he gets arrested and just before he uh gets brought into the fortress for his own protection he says to the the soldiers he says do you mind if i talk to the people real quick that's chapter 22. We're not, we're not going to, I'm not going to go into this, but he addresses his own people and he shares his testimony about Jesus. <laughs> and once again, they get all mad at him and they, they, they want to kill him and everything else. And he is now arrested. He will, he will uh, be arrested and transferred and appealed to Caesar. And that's pretty much the rest of his life. Being arrested, he might've gotten out at one point and then got rearrested. There's some speculation about that. But pretty much after this, he is bound for Rome. He's going to end up in Rome and he's going to get executed for this in the end so this was a really significant issue understanding that transfer from the old covenant to new covenant and early christians did not all agree on this subject however the bible makes it clear what god's answer is to it and that we really get more clearly than anywhere else in the book of hebrews in fact the purpose of the book of hebrews is to show that the new covenant and what Christ has accomplished is better than the old covenant and what Moses had accomplished in bringing that to the people. And so the book of Hebrews tells us that even if you're Jewish, even if you're a Hebrew, you don't need to keep the law anymore because something better has come. Jesus is a better mediator than the angels. That's Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 2 teaches us that Jesus offers A better salvation than was available under the Torah. Hebrews chapter 3, Jesus is better than Moses in the same way that a son is better than a faithful servant. Hebrews chapter 7, Jesus' priesthood is better than Aaron's because it's after Melchizedek. Hebrews chapter 8, Jesus' covenant is better than the old covenant because it has better promises. Hebrews chapter 9, his heavenly priestly service is better than the priests who are serving on earth. Hebrews chapter 10, Jesus' sacrifice is better than the animal sacrifices because it was once for all, and it actually takes away sin. It just doesn't cover it up or make it okay temporarily. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to defeat sin itself. And then last of all, Hebrews 12, Mount Zion is better than Mount Sinai because the Mount Zion covenant is unshakable. And then probably the starkest verse in the Bible on this subject... ahead and write this down, is Hebrews 8.13. Hebrews 8.13 is talking about the two covenants, the old covenant and new covenant, and this new covenant understanding that I've been trying to explain to you this whole time. And that is that in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So the point here is that the old covenant is now obsolete, is old, is ready to vanish away. And that is the understanding that the Bible leaves us with as to whether or not we should keep the law today now the policy I personally have and that I would recommend for you is that if you want to keep any aspect of the law if you want to keep the Sabbath keep the Sabbath don't work Saturdays I mean that's no big deal right if you like Naomi doesn't want to eat bacon so what she doesn't have to eat bacon maybe you don't like lobster I mean, you don't have to eat lob. you like lobster Who doesn't like lobster? Lobster's kind of weird, right? Uh, I mean, it's good, but it's weird. Uh, Madison doesn't like lobster, so she's not gonna eat lobster. And if you wanted to keep any of the festivals, say you wanted to keep the Feast of Weeks, or if you wanted to keep Passover and have like a special Passover meal every year with your family, look, you keep whatever of the law. In fact, you know what, if you want to keep the whole law, go ahead, keep the whole law. But don't you think that it brings you salvation? Because that salvation is through Christ and it's through the new covenant. And don't you think, number two, that you can judge other people who don't keep the law. So you wanna keep any parts of it or you wanna keep the whole thing, go for it. But the moment you come into church and you say, well, why, why isn't everyone, why, why are we serving pulled pork here? Pulled pork is so good. Uh, why, why, why are we serving pulled pork here at the church? The Bible says it's unclean. Yes, yes it does. Leviticus 11, clear as day. In the Old Covenant, when that was delivered, it was unclean. But we're not under the Old Covenant anymore. And since we're not under the Old Covenant, you need to settle down with your law and everyone else has to keep it because you're keeping it business. Okay. So that's, that's how I work it together personally as a Christian. But the theology is clear. The, old co- the, the New Covenant has brought the Old co- Covenant to an end. Hebrews 8.13 says that the first one is now obsolete and that we are now able to relate to God. Now, I want to say one last thing before I close up on this subject, and that is that sometimes Christians get this nasty attitude towards the Old Covenant. They, they have this superior mentality that says, oh, nobody could keep that, it was just such a burden, it was so terrible. That's not really a helpful way of thinking about the law, because let's face it, the law came from God. I mean, we call it the law of Moses, but it's really the law of God because it was from God, given to Moses, written down in the Book of the Covenant. So if you want to say something bad about the law, you're saying something bad about God, because God gave the law. So I think a more helpful analogy is the one that N.T. Wright came up with, which is a rocket that shoots into outer space. And so if you think of it as um, the goal is to get to the moon, and you're on a rocket, forget the space shuttle or any other kind of space ships that might be around think of the old-fashioned rockets right the old-fashioned rockets you had the the uh, main part of the rocket I'll, I'll draw I'll illustrate it on the board because I know you love it when I do that so you have you have this old rocket right but then it also has these booster rockets on it right and you know as it shoots up, all of, all of the smoke comes out and everything, and, and it, it's got those booster rockets, and it gets up and up and up, and a rocket has to, it has to um, escape the Earth's gravity, right? Or else it comes right back down. So it has to reach a certain escape velocity, and that's what these, these big rockets are for. But once it gets to outer space, once it gets to a high enough degree, what happens to these booster rockets? They release. And they fall back down and they're incinerated in the atmosphere as they're coming down do you think that astronaut who is sitting on the top of this whole thing just chilling out do you think he says when he sees those booster rockets falling away oh man those things were junk i'm so glad we got rid of those no he thinks i'm so thankful for the booster rockets they got us all the way from here all the way to here. They did their job. They did a good job. They got us from Moses all the way to Jesus. Thank God for the booster rockets. But what astronaut in their right mind would turn the, turn the whole rocket around and try to go pick up the booster rockets once they've already accomplished their purpose? You wouldn't do that. Why? Because they've served their purpose. They were good. They got you in outer space, but the goal is to get to the moon, baby. It's not to go chase booster rockets around. It's to go to the moon, and that's what they have accomplished to to get us all the way to Jesus. And now we don't need to focus on them anymore. But we need to be thankful for God's just and good laws that he has established. And you know what? I enjoy reading the Torah. I enjoy reading Leviticus. I'm going to go ahead and say it. I enjoy Leviticus. All right? I enjoy Numbers and Deuteronomy. Why? Because it tells me who my God is. It tells me what he likes, what he doesn't like. So I'm pro-law. I'm not going to say anything bad about the law. But at the same time, I'm recognizing that as Christians, because we live here today, we are under a new covenant. Okay? Does that make sense? Well, that's it for this one. Next time, we're going to look at the counterarguments to the new covenant and consider a number of texts that... Sometimes people argue, indicate that the Old Testament law is still in effect today. So stay tuned for that next week. Before closing out, i got just a couple of comments to read back from feedback on Uh The first one comes from Theology Part 21, Conditional Salvation. And that's where I attempted to make the case that salvation can be lost if somebody turns away. And um, Chuck Lamatina wrote, Good presentation, evenly handled, but I believe that when one is truly saved, he or she cannot lose his or her salvation. But there are people who, as Jesus said, hear the word with joy and then fall away. John, in his first letter, tells us, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Chapter 2, verse 19. It is not that continuation in faith brings one to final salvation. It is that those truly saved continue in the faith. Thanks again. God bless you. Well, Chuck, I certainly appreciate you taking the time to listen to a presentation that you already know you disagree with. That shows um, a great strength of character on your part. We too seldom avail ourselves to opposing points of view on this or any other subject, to be honest. So I really appreciate you listening to this and for joining in. But as it stands right now, I don't find this text that you bring up quite frequently, not only on this comment here, but also on the Facebook group, the Restitutio Facebook group, I don't find it to be quite the panacea that you seem to think it is. I do believe that what you say here is true, that there are people who are fakers, And they are coming to church, or they're participating in the first century fellowships and so on, but then they end up leaving, and then you find out, hey, they were never really one of us, okay? Sure, I've seen that plenty today, but I I think that is not a robust enough explanation to uh, sort of dismiss all of the other texts that I brought up in this episode, uh, episode 21, or my own personal experience with A number of heartbreaking cases where there was no question in my mind that this person truly believed. As you probably know, I'm not a Calvinist, so I don't believe in some sort of like mystical, we don't know if we're really one of the chosen or not idea of salvation. Uh, I, I, I deal in tangibles, and if somebody says they believe, if they repent, if they believe, and so on, then what right do I have to then question them later on and say, oh, you weren't really a Christian because five years after you believed, you fell away from the faith. I don't know. It just, that seems to me to be a bit post-hoc, and I don't think Scripture pushes us in that direction. I think we have quite a few texts. I mean, I raised a few here in this episode, episode 21, Uh, but there are many more that provide warnings to not fall away. But I do want to say thank you so much, Chuck, for engaging a little bit here and also online. I know uh, it's difficult to be the underdog in any kind of uh, online forum. And I, I really just appreciate how people are respectful in the Restitudio group. And, you know, I know we disagree on different stuff, and it's, it's, that's okay. That's okay. It's okay to disagree. The goal is that through our disagreement, we would grow closer to the truth, that we would mature into a better understanding of different issues. Uh, And that's obviously why my slogan is, the truth has nothing to fear. Look, if what I currently believe is wrong, then listening to somebody else's view that's different than mine is a good thing, because it will challenge me. And if it's right, then it will outshine the various alternatives that are out there. Also on that same episode, Kevin George writes and says, Excellent teaching. I've been debating with others on this topic and find that a lot of the OSAS debate revolves around the meaning of the word works. When people confuse simple obedience with works, they should notice this, Hebrews 5.9, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, ESV. And Luke 17.10, So also you, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We were unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty. Works for salvation are what one does, thinking that God becomes a debtor, as in Romans 4.4. Not to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due. But but good works that we do with no thought that God owes us anything are not works that we are doing with the idea that God owes us salvation. Obedience and service out of love falls into this category. Obedience is not a work because it is a choice to submit and be loyal. Obedience is not a work that we do to earn anything, neither is it works that we refuse to sin when we are tempted. And then he concludes with Revelation 19.8, which says, It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Uh, I think Kevin's making a good point here, and that is that the sort of traditional Luther et al. hyper critique of anything beyond sola fide, faith alone, generally reduces the idea of, like, obeying God to trying to earn salvation. And I think I tried to make it clear in this episode that that, that, is, that was not at all the case <laughs> biblically, and that our obedience is obviously a response to the grace that has been shed in our hearts through the the gospel message and the work of Christ and so on. So, I think that's kind of just a straw man and it's sad to say but it's it's really ubiquitous in Christian discourse that the moment anyone says that you have to obey Jesus somebody stands up in the back of the room and says that's work salvation. Uh I don't know. I guess it depends on on who's defining what, but uh I'd rather I'd rather be out of favor with this sort of trendy, evangelical, that's work salvation charge, and in favor with what Scripture says than the other way around. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.